Hello, Live Inspired community. It's producer Amy. And before we get started with today's episode, I want to extend a special invitation. Join us next Thursday, February 10th at 10 a.m. Central Time for a live stream interview with three-time Olympian Devin Harris. As one of the members of Jamaica's first Olympic bobsled team, Devin's story and determination captivated the hearts of many at the 1988 Winter Olympics. Tune in to hear how Devin overcame the adversity of growing up in the slums of Kingston, Jamaica, how he learned the power of persistence, and how you too can push beyond any limiting belief. We will be streaming live on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn again on Thursday, February 10th at 10 a.m. Central Time. Visit the show notes at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast for more information. Well, Akili Company's culture sets them apart and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keely Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck. And hello, my friends. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We got an awesome guest to bring your way today. His name is Daniel Jones. You probably have heard of him because for the last 18 years, Daniel's mission has been to publish honest personal essays about contemporary relationships in his massively popular New York Times column, Modern Love. It has spawned a huge podcast, a television series broadcast by Amazon with the same name and the same editor. Dan, to create all this content, reads, I hope you're sitting down when you hear this one, 10,000 submissions every year. And every one of these submissions brought in from now all around the world focus on some aspect of love. Love lost, love found, sometimes love reclaimed. Love that's romantic love that's familial, love that's platonic, and love that's unexpected. Most of all, stories celebrating love as it exists in real life today. Some of the stories are unconventional, while others hit so close to home. Some reveal the way technology has shaped and changed dating forever. Others explore the timeless struggles experienced by anyone who has ever searched for love. But all of these stories are, above everything else, honest. Together, they tell the larger story of how relationships begin, how so often they fail, and how sometimes so beautifully they endure and they thrive. Today, Dan shares the genesis of modern love, some of the most memorable essays that he remembers over the last 18 years, and what he's learned from reading hundreds of thousands of complex, beautiful, tragic, redemptive love stories. My friends, you are going to love today's episode, so do me a big old favor, buckle up, Valentines, 
draw yourself a little closer to the podcast radio, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, open up that pen, get ready to take some notes as I bring on my friend, soon to be yours, his name is Daniel Jones. Daniel, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, it's great to be here, John. Well, man, I feel like I'm on with a friend. I've been following your work for about 17 years. If you were to stand in front of a stage, how do you like to introduce yourself? Mm, that's a good way to start. Well, I work for the New York Times as an editor. I edit a, a personal essay column called Modern Love that is um, short, true stories. And we, you know, I interpret love very broadly. Um, it's not just romantic love, but it's, uh, you know, some of the, the blood bonds of family are some of the most moving stories that there are. It's, it's familial love, it's friendship, um, it's parenthood and how we meet people and how we fall out of love and how we try to hang on and how we repair relationships. Um, this has been going on now for, we're in our 18th year of uh, running these short stories in the paper and online every weekend. So 52 a year. And in recent years, in the past six, six years, it's, it's expanded into a podcast where the stories are read aloud and we get updates from the writers, um, the Modern Love podcast. It has become a television show on Amazon Prime, just released its second season in August, where these stories uh, are universal enough that they can be reinterpreted and shared with at this point, millions and millions more people, um, which has been really satisfying. So my work and who I am, I'm sort of like a shepherd that takes people's stories and finds stories that are moving and brings them to a larger audience. And in a way, they really, um, they often change lives. Like to understand how other people live, you need a personal story to, to you know, you need to be able to attach that to a person rather than an abstract concept of, those kinds of people or whatever. When you hear a personal story and get attached to um, the details of one person's life, it can really uh, make you feel more empathetic toward that person. And that's part of the goal and part of the result. Part of the goal and part of the result of today's conversation, I think will be to share some of those stories that you've heard over the last 18 years to share a little bit of your story along the way, mm -hmm. but ultimately for us to recognize as listeners that the story we celebrate on this podcast is ours, like the, the beauty and the power and the imperfection, but the magnitude of the story of our lives. And so I, I, I think you've done a phenomenal job and I always find it surprising, although I should not. There's a guy that I love to read named Henry Newman. He's a spiritualist and uh, he writes, what is most personal is also most universal. Mm -hmm. You always find when folks are writing about their bipolar or their child who's been diagnosed with autism or the death of their spouse, that these things that I have no connection with whatsoever are, in fact, the stories that seem to move me most deeply. So I, I want to hear some of those stories today from you, but also a little bit of your story. So where did you grow up? Where was your childhood? Oh, I grew up in different places. My father was a professor of political science, and he began at least when I was alive, <laughs> at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So I was in Tucson, Arizona for the first, first six years of my life. And then he went to the University of Pittsburgh and I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, first grade through 12th grade. And then he moved on to the University of Virginia, which made it easy for me to go to school there. So I went to the University of Virginia um, for four years. 
and then went back out west. I'd, I'd been a, a big skier in Western Pennsylvania. I spent every weekend skiing with my friends and became a ski instructor. So I graduated from college, had no idea what I wanted to do and went out to Utah to be a ski instructor for a couple of years, back to Tucson, Arizona to go to graduate school for writing and met the woman who had become my wife there. Uh, and we moved to New York City together. This would be in the early 1990s. And I've been in New York City or around New York City ever since. The autobiography of Daniel Jones, which is shared there on 4X speed. So I'm going to slow it down just for the parts <laughs> that I find surprise. And I think sometimes from our, our families of origin, we learn what we don't want to become, or we learn exactly what we desire one day to become. And so fr from your dad, since we're talking about the professor, your father mm -hmm. for a moment, what about his example of love that you realize, man, I want to model that someday when I have a family, I want to be like that. Well, in the manner in which he modeled love, what did you want to model as you grew up? Oh, that's interesting. My father was a real sort of caretaker of things. My, my fondest memories of him when we were growing up was how he would choose to spend time with us, which were always through sort of passions of, uh, like he and I um, were coin collectors together. <laughs> and there was a little, a little coin and stamp collection shop. I, I think these things have largely fallen out of favor these days, but in those days, I just, uh, we, we would spend hours in this coin shop I collected pennies and nickels, I think, and he went a little more upscale. He was collecting dimes. But when I think about it now, like I was obsessed with that and it was completely fun for me. I imagine being with me and having this thing to do was fun, but I can't imagine being in a coin shop for hours. <laughs> it was fun for him in the same way that it was for me, but that's the way he just, that, it was that kind of patience mm. that I really appreciated about him. And then he, he was also, uh, this was partly a, consequence of in those days, hardly earning any money teaching college. I think it, those, that has changed over time, but my parents were really frugal and we had a camper truck and all of our vacations were spent in that camper truck. And that was another thing of just time, time together um, and in the outdoors and in these days of screens and connection through screens and spent getting, finding all of our entertainment through screens, it was a real tactile in nature childhood that uh, looking back, I really value. You mentioned UVA a moment ago and then graduating. What, what was your degree in? It was in English. And then what were you assuming? Hey, when I graduate, dad, I, I, I will get a job. I won't always be a, a ski instructor. What, what were you thinking one day you would do uh, with that English degree? Yeah, now we're getting on touchy ground because I, I didn't even I didn't even really know what I wanted to be, except that I knew that I liked to write. And my parents, they were supportive of me just going out west and wandering, but I'm sure they were concerned about it. And I know that um, they were relieved when I spent my two years in Park City and then went to graduate school, even though it wasn't even graduate school that was going to set me up. To earn right. a earn an income, it was just at least he's in school. Um, I, I think they're really su surprised and gratified by how things have turned out. But I think there were some nervous years there where I was trying to find my way, and they let me find it. There's so much of your story I really find fascinating. But here's this man that I'm interviewing today who truly is an expert on love. You've been doing this work now for 18 years, and you're an expert on vulnerability. 
And you've shared the story a couple of times. And so you're about to share it again, hopefully with my audience of two years into the relationship, you realize she's the one, but you also realize you're not going to be the one that asked the question. Take us forward from that. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty shy about being called an expert in any of these things um, <laughs> because I don't think of love or vulnerability as things you can master. Um, they're things you can learn about, but it's not a field of study uh, where you can take a test and ever do well. But yeah, she and I, she and I met in school. We were a couple of years into our relationship. We were in a, in visiting San Francisco and we were uh, on a ferry boat heading to Sausalito. And she was sort of expecting me to propose, I guess. And I hadn't really thought it through. We actually, <laughs> it, but it was a romantic moment. She said to me as we pulled away in the ferry, I guess she was getting impatient. And she said to me, so are we going to get married or what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we should. Um, and that, that was that was this love experts, uh, very unromantic <laughs> proposal of marriage. And then we, we actually disagreed to this day on what happened next. She claims that she asked me to get down on one knee and propose. And I don't remember that part. Maybe I was just, uh, maybe my brain froze and those memories are gone. Um, but that's, yeah, that's how it happened. It's, it was very just sort of in the moment and impromptu. The way you framed it, I heard you speak at a, a conference once and, and you, you, you framed it as you weren't afraid of spending the rest of your life with her. You were afraid of asking her the question most people would be afraid of. The opposite almost, a lifetime seems like a, a, that's a commitment. Asking yeah. a question is not so hard. So what was it about asking that question and getting down on a knee and looking her up, looking into her eyes that was so terrifying? Moments for me are terrifying, moments. Um, that's when I feel scared. The future doesn't scare me, it never has. I don't know why, but I always feel like things will work out. And I feel like I've had a, a good life in that way, but I'm, I'm always like looking looking forward to what's to come. But those decision moments, and especially when they involve like a kind of performance where you're expected to do a certain thing, um, ever since childhood, those are the moments that I've really seized up and I just try to avoid them as long as possible. <laughs> this moment shows up in your life. You say yes to it. I don't know if you get down on the knee or not. I'll let you and your wife argue about that tonight. But uh -huh. the bottom line is eventually you say the words I do. You end up raising a couple kids. And midway through launching them into their own lives, you, you, you come up with this idea of modern love. Would you just take us to the, the genesis story of where this concept even comes from? Yeah, we, we were interested in the complications of relationships and marriage. We decided to ask a bunch of writers, she started, um, to, to write essays about the stresses of really of contemporary relationships. And we're talking about often both people working, both people being um, active parents, trying to earn an income, often sandwiched between parents who needed us and children who needed us, and, and having trouble managing that all with a, with a marriage in the middle. And so we, she asked, she did a book full of women, I did a book full of men, who are addressing these questions of, of in a real honest way of, of how difficult these kinds of intense family relationships can be and romantic relationships. Um, and those books were read by uh, an editor at the New York Times who heads up the section that Modern Love is now in. 
and they did a story on us um, because it was interesting having a husband and wife field his and her uh, responses to these kinds of stresses. And, and then he said, I'd like, to, I'd like to find a way to have this kind of material in the New York Times every week. Mm-hmm. And these honest stories about you know, people are struggling with relationships or overcoming struggles in relationships. And he wanted to hire us as a couple to, to edit that, to get people's stories and get them in shape to be published. And that, so that happened 17 years ago on Halloween day <laughs> was the day that the first story ran. My wife writes novels um, and she was actually working on a book at the time and didn't want to continue with this job as a halftime kind of job. I wanted to, and we saw it as a one person job. So she sort of backed out and I took over and I really thought it would be two years, mm-hmm. you know, maybe three years. These columns have sort of a, a shelf life. And the editor that hired me said that. So I'm more stunned than anyone that we're now in our 18th year and it's become all these other things. And now it seems to just be growing at sort of an unstoppable pace. And I enjoy it as much as I ever did more because there's more, more to enjoy. The term modern love and the draw into it was this desire to figure out, do other people struggle in the relationships of marriage, like my wife and I do, and some of our friends do as well. And yeah, when did you realize, you know what, we're, we're talking about something here, writing about something here bigger than marriage? The early essays really had a big impact. I think what I underestimated is how private these matters usually are. Even if people are seeking help in their marriage and relationships, they're doing it privately through a, a therapist or through close friends or family. But it's very hard to talk about these about these things in in a, in a bigger way for more people. And the, the nature of these essays is they're so sort of confessional. Like here's my story, and here's they're really honest and and open and searching and complicated. I think it was such a relief to people to see their story or elements of their story in in public you know to say these are things that lots of people are going through it's not just you <laughs> you, know, you always right. think it's just you but it's not just you um if you're trying to figure out h- how to manage those stresses of having little kids and being in a marriage i mean my god with the pandemic the stress on families during this time has been so intensified but the the relief of knowing like oh well everybody's going through this it's not just me and my marriage and, and having these negative feelings and how am I going to overcome this and how are we going to press on? I, I think the, the success of the column and the, the resonance, the greater resonance of it comes from that sense of, of one person's individual story representing millions. Mm. Um, there's nothing that I feel or that you feel that millions of other people don't feel. You know, it, it's, it's all, we all, we all have the same set of, of emotions that we're dealing with. Right. And, but it's, but especially with relationships, it's not talked about. And so I think it's just a relief to, to be able to hear it. Dan, in that first year, we'll get in a moment to how many essays you get now, which I think will surprise or shock the listeners. In that first year, how many essays were submitted? God, I don't even know. We had to, we had to jumpstart the whole process because it didn't, the column didn't exist uh, I should clarify that it exists now based on people sending in stories, sending in their stories. And it's, you know, people the world over know about the, about the column. And 
So, uh, and it prompts people to tell their stories. So there's this sort of refilling well of stories that, that are always coming in. But at the beginning, you know, it didn't exist and we had to sort of prime the pump with stories. There were, there were a few stories early on that, that got a big reaction. One about a woman who was getting divorced because her husband uh, had been sort of leading the secret life of of spending all kinds of money without her knowing about it and all of that. And it was one of these sudden divorces where he just literally like left the house that day with his clothes and a suitcase and, and that was it. And it was a very bracing essay. The title of it was so funny. It was the chickens in the oven, my husband's out the door because she had put a chicken for the dinner to cook in the oven. And by the time that chicken was done, the marriage was over and he was gone. And it was a very bracing essay about that kind of disappointment and shock. Mm. Uh, and because it went so broadly and was read so broadly, it, and again, it triggered other people wanting to write about their stories. And so the material started to come in. I have no idea what the number was, but I always struggled in that first year to get material each week. And I haven't had to struggle much since. <laughs> uh, no, not so much. And just to put a, a bow on that now, my understanding is uh, you average around eight to 9,000 essays submitted a year. Is that about something, right? Something like that. Yeah, maybe up to 10,000 a year. I've stopped counting and I've lost count. <laughs> The 10,000 that you get a year, one of the commitments you made early on is to honor those who submit these by reading them. You never want it to just be this empty trash can where, hey, once we got marches covered, we're going to let the rest go into the trash bin. You actually honor them by reading these. Now you're receiving 10,000. Is it, first of all, difficult to even begin opening up that kind of mail or email? And then secondly, how difficult is it to choose which ones make it in? You only get 52 mm -hmm versus by my math, 9,944 <laughs> that do not. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we responded to everybody. I say we, but back then it was just I, now there are two of us. Uh, I wanted to respond to everybody because if I, uh, I don't know how many people in your audience are writers um, trying to publish things, but it, it's, it's more common than not that you try to get your writing published and no one responds at all. That's right. And, and you'll, you'll send, and it's even more that way at major publications where they're really swamped. You just, you send it off and you don't hear anything back. And I just thought if, if we're to create sort of a culture of trust where people feel that they can tell their most important story and someone will be on the receiving end, I just thought that would increase our chances of getting good material. Mm -hmm. Because I was a struggling writer for years. And when I sent things off, to get published and never heard back, I wouldn't send back to that place again. And I, I wanted to, that experience led me to think, well, I'm a pretty good writer. I would want to read my own material you know, if I'd send it in. So um, that was sort of the promise made. It's been a very tough promise to keep as the volume has increased to what it is, but we still respond to, to all the stories that come in. Um, we still open every story that comes in we read very fast and very selectively and stories demand to be read to answer your question of how we choose when you're reading that volume and you're reading that much um, for so long, you just get very good at picking up clues about a story that really has impact, a story that's really being told from the heart. Um, I can tell that within a few sentences if that's where we're, we're headed. 
many of these stories I begin and don't finish, but if a story really pulls me in and carries me along, there's a really good chance that that's going to do the same thing for readers. Other than that, it's just variety. Uh, other than, than a story demanding to be told, it's just like, okay, well, what stories do we want to tell? What stories do we want to represent and what kind of variety and how many different voices and ages and races and ethnicities and um, we're increasingly getting stories from other countries because the, the TV show and the podcast are quite international. So people have, who may not know about the New York Times or read the New York Times, but they know Modern Love and they find out that they can send their story in. So we're getting more from, from abroad as well. A couple of weeks ago, I was honored to speak at a conference on forgiveness. It was a, a, a men's conference to prepare for that because it's not a topic I speak on frequently. I, I really had to do my work. So for a couple of weeks, I was just inundated with ideas, letters, scripture verses, videos, my own personal journey on forgiveness. And for those two weeks leading up to this conference, I, I felt different. Like fundamentally, I woke up, I lived, I treated my wife and kids and my parents and people who cut me off on the highway differently because all day long, I'm in the middle of forgiveness. So thinking about you opening up 10,000 emails a day <laughs> on love and loss and redemption and forgiveness and all the stuff that you are just swimming in all day long and now doing this for 18 years, how has that journey shaped the way that you you love, and I'll be broad because your, your, your posts are broad. It's not always intimate. It's not always the Valentine's Day version of love. So how, how has the last 18 years informed your, the way you show up as a loving human being? More than anything, it's made me see the bravery in sort of everyday people. We, 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 we run stories that sometimes are just very light and funny, but usually are more, um, often are the most important story in that person's life and involve loss and, and often trying to find love again after loss. And the, and the bravery that that takes is really inspiring. And people don't ask for these burdens. <laughs> they just, living, living involves loss. There's nothing there are two ways about it. And loss can mean death or loss can mean a loss of love or someone leaving you. It can mean being estranged from family members. What's inspiring to me is seeing how people get back on that horse. Yeah. And it's, it's made me, well, I guess there are two things. It's made me want to be braver in the face of difficulty. And it, it also changes the way that I, like you were saying, it changes the way when I like walk down the street and look at encounter strangers and that, that sense of like, everybody's got their baggage that they're carrying, <laughs> you know, everyone's, and some people handle it gracefully and some people, you know, wear that sort of pain on their face, but everyone's, everyone's carrying that heavy bag, no matter what age or whatever. And, and they're still sort of finding ways to move forward. So for, for me, just being in a city or in the country or wherever I am and, and encountering other people, it's a hyper awareness of that, you know, how deep those roots go with every person you see, you know, it's all there. You, you know that they've, they've lived these lives that have included all of these things because I'm, I'm sort of bathing in those lives every single day um, of other people. I have now at home a 16-year-old son. He's a sophomore in high school. The freshman year dance was canceled due to COVID. Sophomore year dance was on. We asked him repeatedly who he's bringing. 
of course, you know, he's ghosting us at home. He doesn't talk to, to his parents at all if he can avoid it. But we finally find out that he's bringing this young girl who lives a few blocks away. As we move closer to the dance, I say, so when are you picking her up? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm not bringing her. And I'm like, well, did you tell her? He goes, no, not yet. I'm like, well, there are a couple of things right now, Jack. Number one is you are bringing her. And number two, don't you ever cancel on somebody like that. So I'm telling my neighbor this and she goes, oh, yeah, they, they do this all the time. They'll make an invite. Then they won't even show up. They'll go go with just, you know, a bunch of guys or a bunch of girls. There's absolutely no commitment at all among these younger people. Which made me think about you and your column. You've been doing this for 18 years. How have you seen love change in the manner mm. in which it reveals itself among couples, among young people, divorcees, whatever it might be? How has love changed over two decades of writing about it? I think the feelings are the same, and they're the same going back to Shakespeare, and they're the same going hundreds of years before. So that, that kind of need to connect with other people, to care for other people, is, is sort of you know baked into us. What changes are the are the ways we connect, and what's socially acceptable about connection. I'm I'm sort of grateful to work around a lot of young people at the New York Times, and to have mm. and to have young people as children who are who are in their twenties and can sort of keep me on my toes about the way things are changing. But you know, obviously, the biggest shift in how we connect is technology and the way that I was just talking to someone about this the other day, how it's changed how we plan, first of all, when you don't, in the days before cell phones and GPS and all of that, you had to had to make a plan right. to meet someone at a specific place and you had to stick to that. And, and I sort of wonder how that even reflects commitment because in the past, you had to commit to plans because you couldn't change your plan. <laughs> and thinking about your son, you can change plans up until a second before that plan is to, is to be enacted and you can notify everyone about that change of plans. So what does that do to our sense of, of commitment to committing to a plan and following through? You have to say, well, why? Um, I can change the plan later. Everyone else can change their plan later. I, I don't like to think of these things as being good or bad. It's, it's just a shift in, in sort of how we react to what we're working with. And these kinds of cultural shifts happen all the time, but I am fascinated by, by technology and what it, what, it, what it enables and what it allows and how we use it as a shield, you know, mm -hmm. to keep people away at times, but especially during this, this pandemic, what it, has, what it has allowed to happen in terms of work and family connections that could you imagine having this pandemic before we no. had <laughs> laptops and phones and what it, how much of this country and this world would be completely shut down with, without this? It's, it's really remarkable. I'm glad you brought up the pandemic. Many of us are still living right here in the middle of it. How did you see the submissions that were coming in through the pandemic change in the midst of it? So, you know, you're chugging forward yeah. in 18 and 19 and early part of 20, and then this thing happened. So how, how were the articles that you were then reading change after March of 2020? There was an immediate gravity to what we started receiving. And I have to say, at first, we were going to ignore it. Modern love doesn't really follow the news. Um, the stories are thought to be universal and a little timeless in a way, um, at least within a year or two. 
So it doesn't, um, we are going to ignore it. You know, we forget how naive we were about this pandemic at the beginning. Like we, we were sent home for two weeks at the beginning um, and then that was extended and now it's been two years. But at the beginning, we really thought like this will pass in two weeks or a month. Um, and so we were just gonna continue our, what we call counter-programming in the column. And that decision lasted about a week. Um, everything that came in started to become pandemic related. And I thought it was interesting at the beginning, any relationship that was casual, people were faced with a decision. Do I wanna make this, do I wanna cut this off? Is this someone who I wanna quarantine with basically? Is this someone I wanna live with for a month or two um, if that's what we thought it was at the time? Do I wanna be by myself? A lot of single people are really faced with that question. Do I wanna be by myself? Completely isolated? Do I wanna throw in with somebody? There were a lot of, a lot of stories where people um, who had been comfortably non-committal in a relationship tossed in together and it was good for them. They, they didn't have any choice. You know, <laughs> They suddenly were each other's most important person and it saw them through and they wound up together and all of that. And without that, that kind of, um, are you on the boat or off the boat moment, they may have just continued in their non-committal way. So that was, that was interesting to see. It also, it also separated people who, who didn't feel like they could throw in together and ended relationships prematurely. And uh, like in one case, there was a married, a married couple. Uh, she was widowed. He had been divorced. Um, so late in life, they were married, but they were already settled in their lives. And he lived in Baltimore and she lived in New York City. And they'd continued that. They'd see each other, they'd visit each other, but they were married and living in two completely different cities, um, hours apart. And she was like, I don't wanna be just by myself for all these months. So she moved in with him for the first time. And they discovered a whole new um, way to be together that was forced upon them, but, right. but for the good. It was something they were, they were frightened of. So it was transformative, I think, for a lot of people. It was very isolating for other people, but it was transformative for a lot of people. And yet so many of the articles that have been submitted that you've edited, they begin online. And it's the perfect match. And then when you move in, when you see them in the airport, when you have your first dinner together or whatever else that might lead to, you recognize how imperfect that relationship is. And, and if we even begin unpacking that, we'll have to go to the bar and get another round of drinks because we'll go way past time. So I, I won't even <laughs> allow you to respond to that right now. You've had, I'm sure, some of your favorite articles, but also without a doubt, we have had our favorite. And by far the biggest was the advice on the 36 questions to ask. If you really want love, ask these 36 questions. First, give a number on how many people ended up reading that just to give some context. And then secondly, through your own perspective, why was that so well received? In terms of how many people read it, I honestly don't know, but I, it's probably 30 or 40 million at least. I was really caught off guard by that. I, I thought it was a, a, a really compelling piece. It was about a woman who was studying the psychology of sort of how to fall in love. And she'd come across this study that was not widely known, written by a psychologist named Arthur Aaron, where they tried to see if you could help people fall in love by equalizing vulnerability. Hmm. And the way you equalize vulnerability is by saying, okay, you, you ask these personal questions of the other person and that other person has to ask those same questions of you. So instead of one person 
feeling like they're revealing things when the other person isn't like it it forces it forces it it forces you to really get to know each other and the questions were sort of strategically arranged um, to get deeper and deeper and deeper but it was a, it was kind of a brilliant it's easy to dismiss these kinds of things as gimmicks but it was a brilliant if it's a gimmick, it was a brilliant gimmick because it really worked and it would work in friendships and it would work in long time marriages within families. It's just the process of getting to know someone deeply. And it, it, it really just took off in a way that was kind of incredible. I've never, I've never experienced before. It went around the world, people were doing, and I, and I can't even tell you how many people have written saying that we got we found each other and fell in love because of this. <laughs> this is this is what did it for us. And that's kind of a fun way to think that you're changing lives at that level. I thought about being lazy during this interview and just going one by one through 36 questions <laughs> a decade ago. But then I thought you might hang up on me two or three questions. <laughs> no. I did a little bit of homework, but the questions are phenomenal. And it's an article for those who have not yet researched it and read it, they should, and they should ask those of themselves and they should ask it certainly of a loved one. So I, I, I love that one. And then one of my favorite stories of you, and also it's one of, I think the best titles that you guys have come up with, you may want to marry my husband. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that article, what is that, that one about? You may want to marry my husband. This this essay was written by a children's book author named Amy Krauss Rosenthal. She was dying of ovarian cancer, probably in her late 40s or early 50s, married, children, knew that she didn't have much time left, didn't know how much time she had left, but knew that the end was near. And she wrote an essay called You May Want to Marry My Husband, which I write about 99% of the headlines for our essays. And she wrote that one. Sometimes the writer will write one and it's just perfect. And she was one of those. So that was, she gets credit for that headline. It was an essay in the form of kind of a dating profile for her husband to find love after she had died. An incredible act of generosity. And to be thinking of him and him being able to move on after her. The story, I mean, it's an interesting story in terms of how that got published because she sent that in to our huge inbox, yes. which we go through generally chronologically. And it just sat there. It sat there for, and again, she was in, in not in good shape already by then. And then it got, she had a, a book agent who contacted one of the editors of the book review who was on vacation, who then got that email late, but then finally wrote to me and said, here's this here's this essay. And I read it and I just, I couldn't quite believe it. Um, and my main thought was we need to publish this immediately. And we have a schedule, we have things set up to, to publish. And so it was, it was a race. It was sort of a race against time. And we pushed things around and I worked on it with her to edit it. And, you know, we spoke on the phone. She, even during that phase, she was having trouble sort of drawing a full breath and completing a full sentence. We've got it edited got it scheduled, um, it appeared in the paper, was a, was a huge sensation in terms of uh, impacting people around the world. Unfortunately, she wasn't really aware by then. Um, she de deteriorated to the point where she wasn't, she was in hospice and she wasn't quite aware of what was happening when it was published. Um, and then she died 10 days after it was published. 
But wow, it was really moving on a global scale and in- inspiring on a global scale. And on a personal one. Frequently, those articles will just bring me to my knees and, and have me wiping my, my tears. But that one in particular, yeah. to be losing your life and, and losing the battle, if you will, against cancer and to be thinking how terrific your husband has been for almost three decades and how well he's raised his kids and how beautifully he loved me. And then to be celebrating him in this beautiful letter to a community. I mean, it it just. And she surprised him with it. He didn't know she was writing it or had submitted it or that it was being published. It's epic. It's such a beautiful love story. So just two, two questions as we move toward what we call the Live Inspired Seven. The first one is for those who are putting the chicken in the oven right now and are worried about their loved one, their partner, their spouse walking out the door, whether they've been together 18 months or 18 years. And I know you're not an advice guy and you don't like to claim the expert title, but you've been doing this work for a long time. So what encouragement or advice or wisdom would you have for those of us who are in the midst of a relationship, but we want to make sure love stays at the forefront of it? Someone was telling me not long ago that we often treat our loved ones not with as much respect or speak to them with as much kindness as we would just a stranger on the street. <laughs> and, and because that over-familiarity and sometimes contempt or just irritation starts to take hold and her advice, which I'll just repeat, was talk to your spouse. If you wouldn't talk to someone that you just encountered at the bus stop brusquely or rudely, don't do that to the people you love most. And I thought that was really good advice because it's just, it's a daily right. and even moment to moment kind of reminder of treat, treat your loved ones as kindly as you would someone you're seeing next to you on the bus or, or that you're, you know, meeting at the airport or something like that. Basic, just basic kindness and, and respect um, for those you love. Dan, we, we're in the midst of the, the month of Valentine's Day, man. So here we are in February for those of us who are single. And neither we are aching for a relationship or we're just trying to do life well together right now by ourselves. What encouragement or wisdom might you offer those of us who are single? Again, I hate to come back to the pandemic again, but it's been such a reminder of, in a way of people's adaptability to massive change in being able to, through technology, make connections that are meaningful. I mean, one thing I've found heartening during the pandemic is the is the way people have found love. I'm going to call it love, even though people haven't maybe met in person, but with with people online, the deep connections they've made, and actually the the way that I think technology can help with that is it it can make you more apt to be vulnerable because you feel a little protected by the screen. You maybe even feel protected by the fact that um, you don't think you're going to meet the person. Mm. Um, and I think you can really build lasting, deep connections that way. And I know like the online dating thing is, is scary for a lot of people or just, just meeting people online in those ways, but it works. <laughs> it, it works. And if you can, you know, screw on your bravery enough to go out and meet people that way, um, that would be my biggest advice, especially now while the pandemic is still going on. Hey, love works. Uh, I, I think there's some wisdom in that. There's also <laughs> wisdom. And I, I wrote down, I told you ahead of time, I'm way over prepared for this interview. So I have 11 pages of notes and I have 14 <laughs> quotes that I wanted to ask you about. I won't even ask you to comment on this. I just want to share it for our community. Let's make sure we step back every so often with humility to marvel at the mystery 
of what love does best. That is a quote from my friend, Dan Jones. It's a beautiful quote. And Dan, it's going to lead us into the final sprint to the finish line, which is ultimately the starting line. Seven questions that I'm just looking for spitfire answers from you, starting with question one for Dan Jones. Dan, what is the most impactful book you've ever read? This is crazy, but it's Who Moved My Cheese, which (laughs) just is that short little book about changing, reframing your mind at, at work. And it was just, it was a short book that made me go in and ask for a raise the minute I finished it <laughs> and I got it. So a, a kind of a silly answer, but true. You know, it's a great answer. And <laughs> sometimes the most obvious is the stuff somehow we overlook. So uh, who right. moved my cheese? Great book. What is one positive <laughs> characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Pittsburgh that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, focus. Just being able to, um, I was just telling someone the other day that we lived near this little creek near my house where there was all this, there was a clay bottom to it. And I would spend the whole, day after day after day, like shaping a little, little dams in that, out of that clay and the focus that I had to do that, that I don't have these days and I'm too scattered among all kinds of projects. That's, that's what I wish I could reclaim. You know, th- this next question is going to come actually from the 36 questions you encouraged others to ask of a future mm-hmm. loved one. And I did not know until I reread the article, but here it comes. If your home or condo happen to be on fire and all living things are out, what is the one thing that you would race back in and save? This is, this is going to sound terrible. It's probably an answer a lot of people have, but it's my laptop, which has all of my pictures and all of my everything and all of my life. Um, it's not even, it sounds like a shallow answer, but it's the deepest answer I can come up with. It's, it's, it has my life in it. <laughs> if, if you could sit with that laptop on a bench on a, gorgeous, on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh, wow. That one is hard. I mean, I, my, my childhood hero who died way too young was Roberto Clemente, who was a outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates and died on a mission to help earthquake victims um, when his plane crashed. And he was just so important to me as a kid. And it was so devastating when he died that it would be nice to be able to see him and thank him. It's a great answer. What's the best advice say that Roberto or your father or anybody else has ever provided you? So the best advice you've ever received, Dan Jones, is? Oh my God, these are hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was to not pursue work based on how much you thought you could earn or how much you predicted that work would be needed or embraced, but to pursue the work that means a lot to you and all the rest of the things will come from that. So good. What, what advice would you whisper into your uh, sophomore self at UVA when you were 20 years old? I wish someone had whispered in my ear and I'm sure people did focus on your classes <laughs> more, more than you did. Um, I mean, I got a good education there, but it could have been so much richer if I put that first. <laughs> you're, not, you're not alone in wishing uh, you that advice. Uh, I wish I'd started college two years later, actually. That's what I think people should do. Dan Jones, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He helped people tell their stories. Mm. Dan Jones, thank you for helping people tell their stories. And thank you for reminding us that love still works and it still wins. This has been a treat.
Thanks, John. It's been a lot of fun. My friends, that is Dan Jones. I am John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You know, I'm, I'm always looking, as you know, my, my friends and family and fellow Valentines, I'm always looking for that one takeaway, like that one key message. And there's so many takeaways from this episode that you could implement somewhere, absolutely, in your love and in your life. For me, it's actually the way that Dan manages his business. It's one thing to respond to 10 emails or to 20 or to 50 or to maybe even 100 per week. But when you have 10,000 submissions coming in yearly to read those, to respect those, to respond to those personally with the help. Yeah, he's got one assistant, Maya Lee, but to do that all personally because you care about the individuals submitting, that is so admirable, so important, and so rare in this marketplace where we race from meeting to meeting, message to message, event to event, seldom looking back and seldom pausing to give thanks to those who have made a difference for us in our lives. Well, in the last couple of weeks, I've had someone make a mighty difference for me in my life. His name is Ross. Ross, my Australian friend, I know you're tuning in right now because you wrote in not long ago and you shared that you have been tuning in for the past 18 months. So that's pretty awesome. Ross has been a follower now for 18 months, but it gets better than that, my friends. You ready? He has listened to every single Live Inspired episode. That brings us to 434 episodes listened to by Ross. He has walked 3,300 kilometers doing this. Brother Ross, I had to do the math. I did it. That's 2,200 miles. It's the equivalent of walking from St. Louis, my hometown, to San Francisco. I asked Ross what his favorite episode was and why. Ross could not just pick one. He picked about a half dozen. So I'm going to share some of the responses that Ross sent my way. He wrote up first and celebrated a fellow Australian, Janine Shepard. She's episode 27. And by the way, Janine is awesome. And he talked about being blown away by the story that even as an Australian, he had never heard before. Her journey of an aspiring Olympian to an airline pilot and the challenges that she faced following her severe accident. It is a story of overcoming. It's a miraculous story. It's a story of hope and joy. It's found in episode 27. He then went on to talk about a fella named Nando Prada. My friends, you may have remembered reading his book years ago or watching the movie Alive, or maybe you heard the episode as part of the Live Inspired podcast movement. If you have not, Ross and his friend, John O'Leary, would recommend you check it out at episode 84. Ben and Amy Wright, I know they're listeners. They were found at episode 85, the work they do with Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop. Some of the stories that Ben and Amy shared during that podcast made me tear up on air. If you are looking for an inspirational, emotive episode, Ross is right. Check it out. Ben and Amy Wright, episode 85. Ross, next time I'm there, my friend, you and I are going to have a coffee. We're going to have a pint. We're going to catch up. We're going to talk about not only the Live Inspired podcast, but about you, my friend. Thank you for the inspirational email that you sent to me, to our office. It moved me. And thank you for the episodes that you recommended for our community. We are grateful. So my friends, I want to thank you for being part of that community. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Live Inspired podcast And I want to thank you for believing like I do 
that the best days remain in front of us. So my friends and Ross and family and leaders for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. Healy Companies recognizes that their people are indeed their greatest asset. With a focus on career growth and well-being and safety, Keeley Companies are proud to be a career destination. If you or anyone you know is looking to join a culture unlike any other, let me encourage you right now to apply today and experience the Keeley way. If you want to truly make a difference and be part of an organization that recognizes that difference by investing in you, learn more by checking them out online at keeleycompanies.com.